I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Really? Even for the president? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Asking for a friend. I got the feeling there's something right. A friend who's a prosecutor. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Yeah. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk Fantastic Affiliates All blanketing planet earth five days a week i'm brad friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker all around swell fellow and defender of your rights brad friedman from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today uh, where we have some good news and some bad news. Hey, Desi Doyen. Hey, am I the good news or the uh, bad news? Well, you're sort of both. Uh, <laughs> we've got good news and bad news in your latest Green News report. Yes. Uh, coming up a little bit later. When it comes to the uh, Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2019. Now, I don't want to give it away, but the good news is because this is the Word of the Year. But the bad news is because... This is the word of the year. Ah, is that fair enough to yes, say? Yes, that is a good tease. So that and other cryptic teases uh, in the uh, latest Green News report coming up in a bit today. Also coming up, uh, we often discuss, of course, the right to vote on this program. But in fact, in much of the country, in at least 48 states, Shamefully, Yes, 48 states. It is still regarded not as a right, but as a privilege, one that can be withheld at the whims of elected officials and even unelected officials like cops and prosecutors. And you will be shocked to learn that right is taken away disproportionately from people of color, including those who are incarcerated in 48 states across the country. States which disallow voting from prison. Only Vermont and Maine allow prisoners to vote currently, but there is a movement afoot, and I would call it a necessary one, coming none too late to change that, at least in some states, but even an effort at the federal level. We'll be joined by election and criminal justice expert Daniel Nashanian, better known as Taniel on the Twitters, 
uh, momentarily to discuss what happened when he brought concerns from a New York state legislator who described prisoner voting as a insult, quote, an insult to law enforcement and the criminal justice system, when he brought those complaints to members of law enforcement and the criminal justice system up in Maine and Vermont, where prisoners have, yes, been voting for years. Uh, we'll also discuss why it's so important that the current system in the other 48 states be changed if, in fact, the so-called bipartisan efforts for criminal justice reform that you may have heard something about, uh, if those efforts are actually genuine from the folks who are pushing for it. But uh, first, just in case you thought you'd escape your Thanksgiving holiday without a game plan for the continuing impeachment of Donald J. Trump upon your return from the holiday, well, think again. The House Judiciary Committee announced on Tuesday that it will hold an impeachment hearing next Wednesday, December 4. Set your alarms for 10 a.m. on the East Coast. 7 a.m. on the West yeah, Coast. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, in any event, that's the House Judiciary Committee, not the Intelligence Committee, where the public hearings had been held over the past several weeks. The Judiciary Committee is the one where they will ultimately vote to send articles of impeachment to the full House for a vote, which, if a majority of members agree, that would then uh, send the matter to the U.S. Senate for a trial on the removal of the president of the United States from office. That, however, would require a two-thirds majority vote in the Senate for removal. So about 20 Republicans, presuming all the Democrats vote in favor, about 20 Republicans would then have to vote in favor of removing Trump for that to actually ever happen. But the uh, Judiciary Committee in the House announced uh, this hearing on Wednesday while sending a letter to President Trump inviting him and his counsel to attend the hearing and potentially question the witnesses. The hearing is titled The Impeachment Inquiry into President Donald J. Trump, Constitutional Grounds for Presidential Impeachment. And the letter to the White House reads, the committee intends this hearing to serve as an opportunity to discuss the historical and constitutional basis of impeachment, as well as the framers intent and understanding of the terms like high crimes and misdemeanors. We expect to discuss the constitutional framework through which the House may analyze the evidence gathered in the present inquiry. We will also discuss whether your alleged actions warrant the House's exercising its authority to adopt articles of impeachment. The letter signed by committee chair Jerry Nadler closes with a bit of a warning to the president. It says the committee looks forward to your participation in the impeachment inquiry as the committee fulfills its constitutional duty. He says, I hope uh, I'm hopeful that you and your counsel will opt to participate. While we invite you to this hearing, we remind you that if you continue to refuse to make witnesses and documents available to the committees of jurisdiction under HRES 660, quote, the chair shall have the discretion to impose appropriate remedies. So come on over. We'd love to have you. But if you don't start doing what you're supposed to do, what you're required to do under the House resolution, we will impose appropriate remedies. What might those remedies be? I don't know. I look forward to finding out because I, I have too. a feeling we're going to. You don't think he's going to? Nope. 
play along? Well, uh, as to the administration's continuing refusal to make witnesses and documents available to Congress so that they, yes, can perform their constitutional duty of oversight of the executive branch, there was uh, big news which broke at the very top of yesterday's broadcast that I was not able to review in full until after we got off air. But the 120-page ruling from a federal court judge in D.C. was indeed very big and arguably very important news, and it brought a very quick reaction from Donald Trump's Department of Justice in response. The Trump administration moved quickly to respond to the judge's Monday decision against it in the Don McGahn case with a notice on Tuesday morning filed to say it was appealing the ruling and to request that the judge pause her ruling to allow time for the appeal to proceed. U.S. District Judge Katanji Jackson-Brown had issued a sweeping decision that ripped apart the Trump administration's claim that absolute immunity protected former White House counsel Don McGahn from even showing up for subpoenaed testimony before the U.S. House. Brown ordered that, yes, McGahn must comply with the subpoena. In its stay request, however, the DOJ argued that it had a, quote, likelihood of success upon appeal. That's one of the thresholds that must be met for a lower court decision to be paused, to be stayed. The Justice Department also argues that the circumstances met the irreparable harm standard of granting a stay because they wrote, if Mr. McGahn testifies before Congress, the absolute immunity from compelled congressional testimony would be vitiated. That uh, absolute immunity is also what the Trump administration has argued in cases involving his tax returns. And that would, as they argued, keep a policeman from detaining the president if, in fact, he actually did shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight, as the president's attorneys actually argued in court in those tax return cases. He has absolute immunity to do absolutely anything he wants, and that immunity is somehow magically granted by the Constitution. Maybe it's a secret Constitution that I have not read. Anyway, uh, so uh, this is uh, that was the argument that he actually made in in the uh, attempt to stop the release of his financial records that were subpoenaed uh, from his accounting firm in two separate cases. One is a criminal case in New York. The other is an attempt by the U.S. House to review those documents. So far, he has lost in every court ruling in the matter, except for now. The U.S. Supreme Court has given him a few more days in his appeal to come up with his argument as to why they should um, side that the president has absolute immunity to not only have his taxes withheld from uh, Congress, but also to apparently shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. In any event, in Judge Katanji Jackson Brown's ruling on uh, on the case uh, concerning uh, Don McGahn, uh, prior to the request for the pause on Tuesday, the judge absolutely eviscerated the White House and the DOJ's case for absolute immunity from congressional subpoenas for anyone who works for or who has previously worked for Trump. Remember, Don McGahn is the former White House counsel. Uh, in her 128-page opinion, the judge uh, from D.C. ruled executive branch officials are not absolutely immune from compulsory congressional process, no matter how many times 
the executive branch has asserted as much over the years, even if the president expressly directs such officials noncompliance. She wrote that, quote, no one is above the law. That is to say, however busy or essential a presidential aide might be, and whatever their proximity to sensitive domestic and national security projects, the president does not have the power to excuse him or her from taking an action that the law requires. Now, remember, this presidential aide is not busy at all and with protecting documents and national security because Don McGahn is not even in the administration anymore. Jackson's uh, decision is a boost for Democrats, and they are expected to address the Trump administration's obstruction of their investigation in their impeachment articles. And the Trump administration's immunity claim that the judge dismantled in the McGahn case is the same justification that the White House has also invoked to direct witnesses in the Ukraine matter not to testify. Folks like Mick Mulvaney, the White House acting White House chief of staff, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former National Security Advisor John Bolton. So there's a lot writing on all of this. In her opinion, Jackson said the Justice Department had it, quote, exactly backwards by claiming, in her words, that presidents can lawfully prevent their senior level aides from responding to compelled congressional processes and that the neither the federal courts nor Congress has the power to do anything about it. Uh, in the case, uh, the Justice Department had asserted that McGahn, as a former top advisor to Trump, was shielded from testimony by absolute immunity and that Congress could not compel him to even show up to his scheduled deposition the judge at one point compared the administration's legal logic logic to the line from George Orwell's Animal Farm that, quote, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. What is missing from the Constitution's framework, as the framers envisioned it, the judge snarked, is the president's purported power to kneecap House investigations of executive branch operations by demanding that his senior level aides breach their legal duty to respond to compelled congressional process. Apparently, she didn't find that uh, absolute immunity in the in the Constitution either. Go figure. She added, stated simply, the primary takeaway from the past 250 years of recorded American history is that presidents are not kings. King Donald, however, does not appear to agree, uh, and he is seeking a higher court ruling, perhaps a court where he can find a judge or two that he has packed onto it with the help of Republicans in Congress. He lashed out today, as usual, on Twitter, saying, quote, the D.C. wolves and fake news media are reading far too much into people being forced by courts to testify before Congress. He said, I am fighting for future presidents and the office of the president. <laughs> Good Lord. Other than that, he said, I would actually like people to testify because, of course, he would. Uh, he, he added that his former national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, who said he would not testify until a similar lawsuit involving his own deputy has played out, quote, is a patriot 
and may know that Trump did not do anything wrong by withholding nearly $400 million in military aid to Ukraine at the same time he was pushing for the country to investigate the Bidens and the Democrats. Oh, wait, so now he's being nice to Bolton? Yes. Ah. Yeah. Now he's calling him a patriot for some reason after bad-mouthing him just a few weeks ago uh, and firing him. Uh, he also adds, likewise, I would love, I would love, to have Mike Pompeo and Rick Perry and Mick Mulvaney and many others testify about the phony impeachment hoax. It is a Democrat scam that is going nowhere, but future presidents should in no way be compromised. What has happened to me should never happen to another president. So, yes, I know he is very concerned about future presidents because Donald Trump's if there's anything else you can say about Donald Trump, his love for a country and his respect for its beloved and revered institutions is is unquestionable. His I think. selflessness That's right. is widely known. Uh, he's not worried about himself at all in this matter, but he would love for Pompeo and Mulvaney and Bolton to testify in open impeachment hearings before Congress, but he just can't because he's worried about future presidents. Well, as noted on yesterday's program, maybe those folks will. If all of this is delayed in courts long enough, which is obviously the Trump strategy here, some of those folks may simply be called as witnesses in an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate where Democrats will be able to call any witnesses they like, and then it will be up to the immediate judgment of just one man, one man alone, the presiding judge in the Senate impeachment trial, which would be Chief Justice John Roberts. And he would decide if a firsthand witness to potential impeachable crimes by the President of the United States will in fact have to answer questions about those impeachable crimes. Look forward to that in the new year. But because, like Trump, I only care about his future, I'm worried that if all is said and done and Donald Trump somehow finds himself in prison, he may have his right to vote taken away. So, yes, I am concerned about the right for felons to be able to vote from prison, if only because I don't want Donald Trump to lose his rights. So we'll talk about that next on the Bradcast. You're welcome, Mr. President. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Right, right, you're bloody well right. You got a bloody right to say. Well, maybe. Right, you're bloody well right. Depends where you, you live. You Welcome right back to, to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, where, yes, we are looking out for the rights of every American, even that of Donald Trump. J. Trump. We fight for voting rights here on the broadcast because I believe that remains the core right for all Americans that helps to guarantee all of our other hard-fought rights. And that means voting rights for all Americans of voting age. And yes, that includes former felons who have served their time and have been released from jail. On that matter, we have spent considerable time in recent months discussing Florida's Amendment 4, a statewide ballot initiative 
in the Sunshine State, which was adopted by a whopping 65 percent of voters across the state just last November, allowing some 1.5 million former felons to rejoin society by participating in their own democracy as voters. The landmark amendment overturned decades of Jim Crow law in that state, restoring the right to vote to hundreds of thousands of Floridians who had otherwise been banned for life from voting in one of the last states in the union to allow that outrage that prevented some 20 percent of otherwise eligible African-American men from voting at all. One in five in the state of Florida. Of course, we've also covered the Republican Party's attempt to roll back Amendment 4 in Florida, led by its new Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, who is said to have defied the polls in his defeat of the Democratic African-American candidate Andrew Gillum last November by an incredibly thin margin, just about 0.4 percent or about 33,000 votes out of more than 8 million cast. No wonder he's worried about Amendment 4 and would like to roll it back as it enfranchises potentially hundreds of thousands of African-Americans. But the move to restore the voting rights of former felons is not only happening in Florida. On yesterday's broadcast, for example... We noted the fact that New Jersey's state assembly approved a new statute on Monday that would restore voting rights to some 83,000 people on parole and probation in the state, hopefully overturning a law from 1844 that prevented former felons from participating in the voting franchise. The measure still needs to be approved in the Garden State by the Senate and uh, signed by their governor, so we'll keep our eyes on that. In the 2019 off-year elections just a few weeks ago, the Democratic candidate for governor in Kentucky, Andy Beshear, unseated the unpopular Republican governor, Matt Bevin, in part on a promise to restore voting rights to more than 100,000 people with felony records in Kentucky, one of just three states, along with Florida and Iowa, who until recently had lifetime bans on voter registration by former felons. Back in 2015, Bashir's father, Governor Steve Bashir, had signed an executive order granting access to the franchise to those 100,000 potential voters. But when the Republican Bevin took over in 2016, he reversed that order. Bashir the Younger is now expected to restore that right once again when he takes office in advance of the critical 2020 election in Kentucky. But, in fact, there are some 300,000 voters in Kentucky, not just 100,000, who are currently banned from voting in the bluegrass state. Bashir's expected move would still leave people unable to vote as long as they are still serving prison sentences or are are on parole or on probation. Meanwhile, some 48 states across the Union prevent those still serving time in jail or in many states, if they're out of jail on parole or probation, from voting at all. Only Maine and Vermont let people vote regardless of their criminal record, which means that people in those states can vote, yes, even from prison. As noted, 
We fight here on the broadcast for voting rights for all Americans of voting age. And yes, that includes those people most affected by the laws made by elected officials. Those people who are, yes, serving in jail for crimes adopted by those elected officials, where unfortunately those imprisoned people in 48 states have absolutely no say about those laws or about those officials at least not at the ballot box. The issue of prisoners voting from jail came up on a CNN town hall earlier this year featuring Democratic presidential candidate and Vermont senator Bernie Sanders, who defended the right for all Americans 18 and older to vote, as is currently allowed, at least in his state. You've said that you believe that people with felony records should be allowed to vote while in prison. Does this mean that you would support enfranchising people like the Boston Marathon bomber, a convicted terrorist and murderer? Do you think that those convicted of sexual assault should have the opportunity to vote for politicians who could have a direct impact on women's rights? Here is my view. If somebody commits a serious crime, sexual assault, murder, they're going to be punished. They may be in jail for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, their whole lives. That's what happens when you commit a serious crime. But I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Because once you start chipping away and you say, well, that guy committed a terrible crime, not gonna let him vote, or that person did that, not gonna let that person vote, you're running down a slippery slope. So I believe that people who commit crimes, they pay the price. When they got out of jail, I believe they certainly should have the right to vote. But I do believe that even if they are in jail, they're paying their price to society, but that should not take away their inherent American right to participate in our democracy. <laughs> Applause for the answer. And uh, while some Republicans and, yes, even Democrats have worried that the issue may not be a popular one, a movement to reenfranchise felons around the country is quickly gaining strength. A New York bill introduced by Democratic State Senator Kevin Parker in October would guarantee the right to vote of all voting age citizens, including if they are in prison. All New Yorkers should be able to exercise their foundational American right of voting, the bill states, according to Daniel Nashanian, who writes about the effort this week at the Appeal Political Report. He says lawmakers have filed similar legislation this year in at least seven other states, as well as in Washington, D.C. Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts also introduced a federal bill just last week to enable incarcerated people to vote, as is already the case in Maine and Bernie Sanders, Vermont. New York Assemblymember Steve Hawley, a Republican, took issue with this New York State Senate proposal, calling the notion, quote, insulting to members of law enforcement and the criminal justice system who worked diligently to get these dangerous predators off the street. Nishanian wondered if people voting from jail really was seen as insulting to members of law enforcement and the criminal justice system, so he reached out to all of the prosecutors in Maine and Vermont, where prisoners have been voting for years without incident. He sought their reaction this past week, uh, along with officials in each state's Department of Corrections who run state prisons and elected officials like the Secretary of State in Maine. 
to discuss what he learned from those officials and if they really were insulted. We're joined now by Daniel Nashanian, who he's the uh, editor of the Appeal Political Report, which sheds light on the local politics of criminal justice reform and mass incarceration. He's also a senior fellow at the Justice Collaborative after serving as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago. And he may be better known to listeners uh, who are on Twitter as the ubiquitous and uh, must read elections expert known there simply as Daniel. Uh, hey, welcome back to the broadcast, Monsieur Nishanian. It has been a long time. <laughs> it's great to be back. Uh, Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, listen, the your piece includes a lot of really helpful information, but right near the top, you sort of cut to the point, uh, you know, to cogent point that I think is not otherwise well appreciated. You write ending felon. Uh, ending felony disenfranchisement would also mean that law enforcement professionals are no longer the arbiters of who gets to exercise democratic rights. You quote uh, a professor at uh, Chicago Kent College of Law who tweeted in response to that uh, Assemblyman Hawley and his complaint that this was insulting to members of law enforcement. That professor, Anthony Michael Christ, noted the right to the franchise must not be subject to the whims of the personal feelings of police officers or any other group for that matter. That really is what this comes down to, isn't it, Daniel? Both law enforcement officials and judges and prosecutors and those who write the laws are really deciding who is going to be able to exercise their right to vote for or against those very officials in the next election and potentially for dozens of elections in the future. That's exactly that's exactly right. So I think you can think of this in two ways. One, if you think about it from the democracy point of view, as you just said, we are allowing public officials... And, and really any group to decide whether or not fellow citizens should have the right to vote. And this debate really comes down to whether, that's an, uh, whether that is a question we should be asking and debating or whether we should cut out that question and just guarantee the right to vote to any voting age citizen, mm -hmm. period. And if we think that this just kind of stops at this question of people with a criminal record, I would invite all listeners, I'm sure all listeners know, the many, many areas in which questions of eligibility, questions of voting rights, question of whether or not people should, people's voting rights in the United States should be absolutely protected or not, that comes up in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. That's because we are not treating the right to vote as an inalienable fundamental right of U.S. Uh, democracy of a right that every citizen should have and and have protected. Yeah. Um. And 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 you know, if you think about what was happening in Florida up until um, this year, which is that the governor and his cabinet, Ray, Ray, Rick Scott and his cabinet, were empowered to a few times a year sit and listen to the applications of people who had completed their sentences and who had effectively come to petition for their rights. Um, they were they were asked questions like how many kids they had from how many different women, mm -hmm. invasive questions that have nothing to do with the right to vote. That were just ways to empower some public officials to lord to lord their authority and control over the electorate. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're seeing um, on. That's what really what we see when it comes to uh, this particular issue of allowing people with felony records to vote. No. And that's 
You're, you're yeah. absolutely correct. I mean, we treat this, we call it a right. We call it the right to vote, but we really treat it as a privilege, don't we? I mean, in all of these states, we have all of these people who decides who, who, who get to vote and who do not uh, at varying levels. But, you know, across, well, 48 states, when it comes to voters in prison, there seems to be a consensus that, no, that's a bridge too far. It may be a right, but that's a right we are willing to take away, which really turns it into a privilege, not a right. Now, in uh, Maine and Vermont, as you know, law enforcement's uh, decisions there Mm -hmm. do not affect people's right to vote. You describe how that creates a very different dynamic between prosecutors and those whom they are prosecuting. How so? Well, it goes back to what we were discussing. Are we empowering people who are elected, Mm -hmm. people who are public officials, to think of the people they... Uh, of the people they're serving as, as people whose, whose right to participate in the, the democratic process as they're going to control. So what, what, I, what I found in Maine and Vermont from, from reaching out to prosecutors there is that not only did, did all of those who respond describe it as a, as a non-issue, something mm-hmm. that they, they, they do not feel insulted by, but also... So many officials in Vermont describe voting as a way to keep connections mm. between the people who are incarcerated and the world outside the prison. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a way to build, re- to keep re- re- relationships, to facilitate the reentry of people who will eventually live, who will eventually leave prison, mm-hmm. and to fight the entire way in which prison isolates. Uh, people in ways that go beyond the fact that they're isolated, in ways that really get to the core of what it means to be a person, who get what what the core of what it means to be a citizen, to have connections to other other human beings. And voting obviously is not is just one tiny piece of how to maintain those connections, but it is uh, it, it it can be at the center of fostering a different approach to the criminal legal system that one that recognizes that prison, that humanity and political citizenship doesn't just stop at the doors of the prison. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's not that prosecutors there are different sort of people than anywhere else in the country. It's just that we have not asked them to think of themselves as gatekeepers of the democracy. We haven't asked them to think of themselves as, as, as the arbiters of who gets to exercise the rights of citizenship. And, and that is bound to create a different sort of approach um, to, to, to one's authority. I, I want to share some of the responses because you spoke with, uh, as you said, to uh, prosecutors, to uh, mm-hmm. people who work at uh, Department of uh, Corrections, and to elected officials. The uh, state's attorney of Chittenden County, which is Burlington, Vermont, uh, Sarah Fair George, and I love that her middle name is, is Fair there, uh, <laughs> she said she was very proud of the state policy. And again, she's a prosecutor. She says uh, prisoners are still a community member and they should still have a say in the way their community is run, whether they're in jail or not. Voting from prison, she said, does not negate their incarceration or any work done by law enforcement to put them there. But it could force elected officials who played a part to think twice about likening those people to animals. She suggested that if more district attorneys, mayors, governors or even uh, attorney generals 
knew that every inmate could vote in their elections, they may start seeing them in a different light and maybe treat them with some respect. Well, there's an idea. Derek uh, Maya Donick, uh, who works for the Vermont Department of Corrections, said our perspective is one of actively maintaining this important connection to society. We want them to become more constructive civic participants than some of their past behaviors have indicated. Staying connected to uh, society means that they will not opt out of social institutions. And finally, Maine's Secretary of State Matt Dunlop had a similar response. He told you that voting is a sliver of light. They're still people. They're still human beings. They're still American citizens. And in no small way, it helps them stay connected to the real world. Daniel, this seems like it would actually help everybody because most of these folks will in fact be getting out of jail at some point and the more they stay connected to society during their incarceration it seems the easier it will be for them to return to society in a a productive manner upon their release no right and it's also important to remember that that people who are incarcerated i mean this this this, this seems like obvious points but the way in which we talk about People who are incarcerated sometimes it would seem like we forget that these people have families, they have kids who, who go to school, and the school board elections mm-hmm. matter to them. They have, um, you know, positions, uh, they, they have families who also need to care about the elected officials, they themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's very, I think it's very telling what the history of, of, these, um, of these laws are in, in a way that's very connected to your question. One, there's obviously these laws, most of these laws sprang up in, uh, in in the time after the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendment, mm-hmm. as 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 a way to pro- proxy in different ways of targeting uh, African Americans and exclude them, and we know the, the racial dynamics of the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. But also, I want to just point out what happened in Massachusetts because Massachusetts, up until about 20 years ago, allowed people in prison to vote. It, it had no such statute. And what happened mm-hmm. 20 years ago, just 20 years ago is that uh, a small group of people incarcerated at a state prison um, started to o- or organize uh, to, to demand better conditions in prison mm. um, and, 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 have, uh, and have something to say about the criminal justice system. And, and the response to that, again, this was a, was a small group of prisoners in the state prison in Massachusetts, and the response to this by the state government, by the governor, and by lawmakers was to really backlash mm-hmm. and uh, make this into a, into a huge prompt to democracy and pass a constitutional amendment mm. um, that, that, created, uh, that created just 20 years ago this, that made people lose, lose their right to vote in prison. And I think that actually is very telling because we hear so much right now about how messed up the criminal legal system is. We all know that the United States has the highest rate of incarceration um, among uh, in, in, in the world, that, and that prison conditions have major, major issues in the United States. Mm-hmm. So think about the fact that organizing in a prison for better conditions mm-hmm. would trigger the, the response of stripping thousands of people of their right to vote. That exactly is what the right to vote is for, to be yep. able to organize for things like better conditions, the fact of not, um, not, not, not being treated in cruel and unusual ways in, in prisons, for instance. And so that exactly is the right, the, what the right of vote is, is for in this country, mm-hmm. to, be able to, to, have, to be able to have an electoral voice to complement other sort of voices we have when 
public officials are um, setting up things like this massive criminal justice system in the U.S. Yeah. And the fact that that is when the people should the right to vote, that is so telling of why it matters that every U.S. citizen have, have the right to vote to at least have that voice into the process it's you know it's fascinating um excellent point and it's it it occurs to me you know there's uh we have seen of late these various calls bipartisan calls in theory for criminal justice reform i believe that uh, donald trump actually signed a bill that uh, begins to do that you got republicans like Rand paul demanding uh, criminal justice reform as well are those people is part of that movement in any way shape or form calling for the restoration of voting rights for these uh, incarcerated uh, people right so i think it's important to remember and your introduction got to that very well that states are in such different situations with this um between states where anyone is incarcerated, is uh, stripped of the right to vote for life mm-hmm. for any felony, to states that just have um, bars on people in prison, and the movement is really taking different forms in different states in response to, 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 to political context, uh, in response to the, the scale of the issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, but we are definitely seeing the criminal justice reform conversations encompass. Uh, encompass these issues of rights restoration um, and as a tool of reentry, as a tool of thinking about how people remain human, as a way of thinking about economic justice and and racial justice throughout the process. Um, And and you mentioned Kentucky, you mentioned Senator Senator Rand Paul, for instance. Mm -hmm. Senator Rand Paul has come out in favor of changing the Kentucky Constitution, for instance, to end the lifetime ban on anyone anyone um, ever voting again once they're convicted of a felony, mm-hmm. which is what Kentucky has at the moment. Unfortunately, that has not not unfortunately not only has that not passed at the state level, um, but the governor, as you mentioned at the mm-hmm. beginning, the Republican governor Matt Bevan rescinded the executive order that alleviated that that lack yeah and we, and we saw and something so, and, 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 yeah. and so there's some tension there between what we are hearing from some and what is being done mm-hmm. um and, but yet it is it can only be a good sign right that 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 there are there is by by there, there is bipartisanship i will also mention uh, louisiana actually might be one of the best examples of this because um this louisiana passed a, bi- a bipartisan law last year that enfranchised many people who are currently on parole and probation. So, um, so Republicans in Louisiana passed a bill that affected people who are still currently serving a sentence, even if outside of prison. So there is um, the, so there is movement mm-hmm. from both parties that is that is um, that that is understanding that that is understanding the problems of stripping people of, of yeah. the right to vote if we expect to have a system that is not just entirely. Yeah, I think we are definitely going in the right direction slowly. I mean, even a few years ago, the idea of uh, fighting for former felons and people out on probation and parole, you couldn't get a lot of support for. We're now seeing much more support for that. But uh, if voting is to truly be a right, not a privilege then it's going to be a much longer fight and a much heavier lift, I think, to uh, fight for that 
act, yes, that actual right for all Americans of uh, voting age, 18 years or older. Uh, Daniel, I've got just a minute or two here, uh, but in what seems like a very related issue to me, uh, those incarcerated, um, they're counted in the census and they're used for apportionment of uh, congressional and legislative districts, as I understand it. But while there may be, you know, thousands of prisoners in any particular congressional district, that district gets representation based on that number. But there is a huge portion of those constituents who are kept from voting altogether. Am I correct about that? And if so, is that fair? Absolutely. That's that's. Thank you for bringing that up because it's such an important issue and one where that's the time to address it is literally now mm-hmm. because the next round of redistricting and map drawing is coming up, as we all know, in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So if this is going to be reformed, it has to be in the next couple of years. We're in for, te- for, for 10 more years of problem on this. And the reason this is so important, Brad, is that it compounds the, the, it compounds the issue because what is essentially happening is that some communities and neighborhoods are over-policed. We know from many studies that some, some, some um, communities and people of color specifically mm-hmm. are over-policed and bear uh, more and bear a heavier brunt of incarceration and get heavier sentences, and they're removed from the, the, their communities and brought to usually rural areas and wider areas mm-hmm. where the prisons are usually located, and they count there, so they reinforce the count of wider rural areas, and they, don't, and they don't get to vote. So what happens is that the, is that beyond they themselves not not getting to vote, the, the communities that are being over policed and over incarcerated mm-hmm. in usually urban areas and areas of more people of color, those communities are losing some of their power, some of their political power, at the detriment of the communities, wider communities where prisons are located. And only five states have passed a law to address this. Five states out of 45, obviously. Yeah. Um, and 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 that that is a big issue. And actually, we have seen movement on that as well this year. Washington State just adopted a bill against this a couple of months ago. Um, Nevada did as well. So that so so that really puts the burden on on lawmakers in other states, you know, who are talking about gerrymandering, who are mm-hmm. talking about the the, the the census count, which are all very important issues. But why not resolve? This issue, which is skewing, yep. pol- which is skewing political power in favor of uh, rural white areas. Well, I think your question answers itself. That's why they don't want to resolve right. this <laughs> issue because it helps them out. Uh, but it does underscore yet again the importance of voting. Uh, in 2020 for state legislatures, uh, no matter how you feel about the folks at the top of the ticket, because it's going to be those state legislatures who determine how uh, the reapportionment will happen after the uh, after the 2020 census. Uh, very quickly, last uh, question for you, Daniel, and this is more a political one. But, I, you know, I suspect Republicans are dying to have Democrats run on a platform of enfranchising hardened criminals, murderers, sex offenders. You heard that question to Bernie Sanders in that uh, CNN town hall. Uh, How should uh, Democrats running for office uh, respond to that? You know, I I think I I, I hear your question. I think it's an important one. Um, I think from from my perspective, it's really a question of whether we should be, or whether we enter this debate of whether our fellow citizens should have the right to vote or not. Mm-hmm. And where that debate ends, because we see 
right now that that debate never ends at the doors of the prison, even if you think it should. Mm-hmm. It does, doesn't even end at the, at the limits of a criminal sentence, even if you think it should. It, ends, it, does, it doesn't even end at people with felony records. There's all sorts of arguments about whether people are worthy of, of, of voting or not, whether mm-hmm. people have shown enough civic capacity to vote or not. And I find all of that universe of questions to be questionable because we are claiming for ourselves the power and authority to decide whether our fellow citizens should have the same rights as us. And I find that to be a problematic question to engage with. And, um, and I think that's just the bottom line, whether we want the right to vote to be a protected right for all U.S. citizens. And uh, frankly, kudos, credit to Bernie Sanders there for not backing down when he was pressed on that at that town hall. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see if uh, all of the other uh, presidential candidates are also pressed on that issue, because I think it is, as I said at the top of this thing, the core American uh, right that helps to guarantee all of our other rights. Uh, Daniel Nashanian, he's the editor of The Appeal Political Report. Uh, you can read his uh, article on this, speaking with uh, with with uh, officials in Vermont and Maine to find out if they're actually insulted by prisoners in their states uh, being allowed to vote. That is at theappeal.org. Story is called When People in Prison Can Vote, Officials Treat Them With Some Respect. Also, you should crucially uh, find Daniel on the Twitters, where his handle is uh, Daniel. That's like Daniel, but with a T. Daniel, really appreciate talking to you today. Hope uh, to do it again soon in the future, my friend. It was great, and and I want to sh- do also a final shout out to all the or- or- organizers who have really been working on on this issue and and on voting rights throughout throughout this year. It's been amazing to watch. You're right. There's some amazing people fighting these uh, these important and good fights that do not get the attention and the coverage that they deserve, especially when we have a uh, scofflaw president sucking up all the oxygen in the nation. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report. And what was what was that tease? The uh, the good news and the bad news from the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year. That is coming up next on uh, the Green News Report with Desi Doyen right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, if you are traveling anywhere in these United States over the holidays, be very careful. Uh, Huge, three huge storms all across the country. 
Yep, it's uh, that time of year. Over Thanksgiving, yeah. And, uh, and by the way, California is still on fire today. Brand new fire near Santa Barbara has broken out. Yes, unfortunately. So, and then there will be rain, and that can mean mudslides. So everybody, please be careful out there. Some might even call it a climate emergency, which we discuss on our latest Green News Report. Leading the world in resolving the climate crisis will be a multi-decade project. We're facing the great existential crisis of our time. This is not a Democrat issue or Republican issue. We take on the biggest challenge in history. We save the world and we do it together. Climate change finds its way into the latest Democratic debate as greenhouse gas concentrations reach record highs with 2019 now the wettest year on record for the lower 48. Plus the Oxford word of the year is climate emergency. The words heard round the world. All of those emergencies and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The fossil fuel industry is probably criminally liable because they have lied and lied and lied. Have they lied, Bernie? They have lied and lied and lied. That's what I hear. This is your... Green News Report. And light. Okay, Desi Doyen, well, our climate emergency didn't only make its way into the Democratic presidential debate recently, it's also made its way into the Oxford Dictionary? Yes, climate emergency is the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2019. Mm. Of course, it's really two words, but who's counting? (laughs) According to the dictionary's data, usage of climate emergency soared nearly 11,000% over the last year, which they say demonstrates a major shift in the way we talk about climate change. Well, that may be good news, although looking back at the previous words of the year in 2018, the word was toxic. Yep. Well, that's held up pretty well. But 2017, youthquake? What? Really? Yeah, that's what it is. And in 2016, post-truth. Well, that one is definitely held up. Oh, most definitely. But there is some good news. If you're faced with relatives over the holidays who question climate science, let them know that new research this week finds that among the more than 11,000 peer-reviewed papers that were published in 2019, there was 100% consensus about the reality that human activity is causing climate change. I think we need more study. The bad news, however, is that concentrations of key climate-warming greenhouse gases in the atmosphere like carbon dioxide and methane, have now hit record highs and actually jumped above the average of the last 10 years. That's according to a new report from the United Nations World Meteorological Organization on Monday. The WMO said in a statement, quote, there is no sign of a slowdown despite all of the commitments under the Paris Agreement on climate change. The WMO also notes that the last time atmospheric CO2 levels were this high was 3 million years ago. Humans didn't exist. The planet was 5 degrees Fahrenheit hotter and sea levels were 30 to 65 feet higher than today. Sounds nice. And man-made global warming has consequences today. 2019 was officially the wettest year on record in the continental United States. Extensive flooding throughout the Midwest this past spring delayed or prevented many farmers from planting at all and hindered their harvests. 
Climate change intensified extreme flooding, plus President Trump's voluntary tariff trade war with China were a one-two punch requiring a taxpayer bailout for U.S. farmers. And that bailout, for the record, was twice as large as the auto bailout back in 2008. Meanwhile, the latest Keystone Pipeline oil spill in North Dakota back in October was actually 10 times bigger than the pipeline owner, TC Energy, originally reported. Knock me over with a feather. This spill was on the existing original Keystone Pipeline, not the controversial proposed Keystone XL. It spilled more than 300,000 gallons Mm. of sticky tar sands oil over more than five acres of crucial wetlands. It was the second large spill on the original Keystone in just the last two years. Well, by all means, let's get that Keystone XL up and running. In politics, billionaire and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has officially entered the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Bloomberg has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to environmental actions like the Sierra Club's Beyond Carbon campaign. But Bloomberg so far has panned progressive climate policies like the Green New Deal. Thanks for nothing. Finally, because of the impeachment hearings, we didn't get to cover the most recent Democratic debate held in Atlanta. A climate change question was asked. What? So that is an improvement. But the time allotted was really not equal to the scale of the challenge, and only a few candidates were allowed to speak. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was the only one who spoke of holding fossil fuel companies criminally liable for lying about their role in climate change. And South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg called for incentivizing farmers to capture emissions with innovative, regenerative agriculture techniques. American farming should be one of the key pillars of how we combat climate change. I believe that the quest for the carbon negative farm could be as big a symbol of dealing with climate change as the electric car in this country. They actually, even though it was a very short time, very late in the debate, had quite a substantive conversation for a change. Yeah, it was neat. We'll see if that neatness continues in the debates ahead. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. There's a big fire burning, but don't be alarmed. It's just country boys and girls getting down on the farm. <laughs> Can I say that every single Tim McGraw song sounds exactly like every other Tim McGraw song? You can, because, hey, it's a formula, and clearly it works. Yeah, it works, I guess. So. Very much go. so. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. My thanks to my guest today, Daniel Nashanian of the Appeal Political Report. And, of course, my thanks to all of you for spending any portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And then, yes, share it with your friends. You can find, follow, and share everything we do here on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where I am the Brad Blog. And you can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. So we'll see you there. We'll see you here. Just try to get away from us. Good luck at it. <laughs> uh, also, my thanks to those of you. We would not be here without those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to keep uh, Desi and I on your public airwaves fighting the good fight as best as we can, as long as we can. But again, only thanks to you on the listener-supported broadcast, those who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. 
That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Ain't no closing time. Ain't no cover charge. Just country boys and girls.